Second uh, Corinthians. We've been doing that for a while now. We're up to chapter 12, verses 11 through 21, and this text is, is a summary, uh, kind of the end and the conclusion of Paul's uh, defense of his ministry to the uh, the people in Corinth who have been criticizing him, thinking that he's weak and ineffective, that his gospel might not be true, and that even he has taken advantage of them. And so again, uh, as we've seen in uh, weeks in the past, there's some sarcasm in this text. There's some irony uh, and uh, a, a lot of questions. So um, let me read to you then 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. The text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. Then perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So just like I said, remember, we are at the uh, end of this section uh, uh, where Paul is defending himself. And and what a great way to end with that list of of things, quarreling, Uh, gossip, conceit, slander, sexual immorality. What a, what a good one. Sounds like the church, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly what is going on in the church at Corinth. And he wants to be uh, very clear and very direct with them. You know, one of the things about this text uh, that is so challenging is it, it should make you a little uncomfortable that you are privy to this kind of ugly exchange that's going on between Paul and this church. I mean, this is this is this is difficult stuff. This is this is hard stuff to talk about because he is dealing with the fact that they've slandered his reputation. They've gossiped about him. They've spoken very poorly of him and and uh, in a sense undermined the gospel. And uh, not only has that happened, but he sees that there's all of these factions and gossip and conceit and all of that. And connected with that is sexual immorality as well. Right. And so, so it's a, it's a, it's a pretty profound thing. Now, 
the, the thing for us, and this is, this is one of the things that makes this so interesting, is remember that this text was intended to be read out loud to the church in Corinth before Paul got there, right? And so here we are now privy to, aware of the very hurtful, really hurtful, really ugly things uh, that had transpired uh, between them. Now, usually when you come to a text, and uh, uh, one of the things that they train you to do uh, when uh, Bible teachers are taught and uh, preachers are taught is that, you know, when you come to a text, you, you ask it some questions like, is there something in this text to believe? Uh, is there something in this text to obey? Is there something to do? Is there something in this text that's supposed to make you feel a certain way or uh, believe a certain thing? This text is, is really fundamentally not like that. Um, it is a, a description of a brokenhearted man seeking reconciliation and resolution with a bunch of immature hardened sinners in his church. So what I want us to do this morning is kind of draw some conclusions from the bigger picture of the text, and then we're going to center in on what I think is really the the, the fundamental, the, the, the biggest, uh, the most important uh, part of this passage, which is verses 14 and 15. And we're going to ask, uh, we're going to ask some, some questions of uh, of the text when we uh, when we get to there. So Paul here concludes his defense, not just of his ministry as an apostle, but what the longing of his heart is for the church in Corinth. So just as he's done in all the churches he planted, Jesus performed miracles in Corinth. And this is one of the things that is so baffling to him is because God did powerful things through him uh, in Corinth when he planted the church, and yet he is criticized as being a fake apostle, right? So, and even with that, Paul refused to be paid by the church. And that's part of the, the, that's the thing that's so hard to understand about this is, is that the criticism that he gets is, you know, Paul, Paul refused to take pay. And as a result of that, he simply did that to manipulate us or, or to, uh, uh, to, to put us in some sort of, uh, a difficult spot, right? So this refusal, strangely, is what's been used against him. And he finishes this section by stating that he is afraid of what he will find in Corinth when he comes to visit. Because he's gotten reports back from Titus and from others that on the one hand, while there's an openness there to receive him, there's also all of these things that have gone on in the church that have to be addressed and have to be repented of, right? Um, Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder along with impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Now, now, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that we could look at this and we could, and this is typically the way we do with sin. We kind of silo our sins, right? We, we think that gossip is a sin and it's in its silo here and conceit is a, its sin and it's in a silo here. Lust is over here and it's silo. But the fact is, that's not the way sin works. Sin's more like a spider web where these things and these these things that are true of us, our rebellion, our unbelief, and all of those things manifest the manifest themselves in these sins that are strangely and weirdly connected. Because people that are prone to anger and conceit and gossip are prone to lust. And people who are prone to lust 
are are prone to gossip and deceit and conceit and 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 all of those sorts of things, right? And so, as, when we read this, we think, you know, man alive, what what a what a crazy bunch of people this is! What a what a bizarre situation that they find themselves in. That this church that God performed miracles in, that He He sent the apostle Paul to, has kind of rejected His authority, and not only has rejected His authority. But look at what's going on in the life of the church. They are, there's unrepented of gossip, slander, conceit, sexual immorality, all sorts of things that are going on there. Now, the thing that is so challenging to us in this is, so when, when Paul is confronted with these things and he sees these things and he understands that these people have spoken poorly of him, that, that they have they have slandered him, they've gossiped about him, they've, they've done all these things, he is preparing to go visit them. And he says, you know what? I'm really afraid of what I'm going to find when I get there because I know these things are going on. And so when I get there, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spank you spiritually. I'm going to let you have it because of the way you've treated me and because of your immorality. Right? That's exactly what he's going to do. No, it's not. What does he say? I'm afraid that when I get there, that God is going to humble me. And when confronted with your sin, I am going to have to mourn. I'm going to have to mourn. Right? He'd have to be humbled before them as he mourned their sin. Now, let me just say right here and right now about this, that this is really hard and this takes wisdom because there is a place and a time for righteous indignation. No doubt about it. There is a time and a place for that. But in this situation and in this case, the apostle says he's going to mourn. Now, now, preferably, I never like to mourn. Never. But I like being angry. There's a lot of, I can get a lot of energy, not life really, but I can get a lot of energy out of being mad at people and, and, and pumping myself up with self-righteousness that they're idiots. They're stupid. They're evil. They're, they, they've let me down. You know what? They make me so angry. That there's, there's something about that that at least initially feels kind of like a drug. You know, it's like, ooh. Yeah, I like that feeling. That's why I've dropped all social media. Because I was addicted to being angry. And trust me, there's plenty of stuff on social media to get angry at. Right? And plenty of people who are putting out things that make me angry. And so I needed to get off of that. Right? Because I was getting a lot of juice out of that, frankly. Um. When was the last time someone did something, somebody gossiped, slandered, uh, mistreated you, and you responded simply first and foremost in mourning, desiring their repentance? Right? Not something that, 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 that comes naturally to us. And so here's what I want you to do from here on out and the rest of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. This is what I want you to, I want to make sure I give you this caveat so you understand what I'm saying. We're going to talk about what it's like to deal with people who don't respond to our love 
and the way in which we desire. Okay? We're going to talk about that. Now, now, as we talk about that, I don't want you to make a law out of anything that I'm about to tell you. Because rather than, because if you do that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because these situations and the kinds of things that we're getting at here are things that are complicated. But I am going to ask you some questions that I think this text raises before us to challenge us to see just how deeply the gospel is penetrating and shaping the way in which we think about our lives. Because one of the, th- one of the mistakes that we make is, and one of the things that we have to be careful about is, is that we think that what the righteousness that Jesus Christ lived and died to, gave, to give us sets us free to do is to get angry when people don't love us or respond to us in the way in which we desire. That's what's happening to Paul. Paul certainly wants their sin to be repented of. He certainly wants his relationship with them to be restored. He wants them to stop gossiping about him. He wants them to stop being conceited towards him. He wants them to stop lying about him. But his first and foremost response is a response of sadness. And the reason for that is because what he sees is is that their sin is first and foremost not against him, but against God. And that grieves him. That really grieves him. And so rather than get him, get his hackles up and get himself all stirred up in anger over this, he first grieves the fact that their sin against him uh, is a minor thing compared to the rift that their unrepentance their pride, their anger, their gossip has placed between them uh, and their Savior, right? So their sin's primarily against God and not Paul. And that begins to give him the ability rather than to just come at them with anger, but to come at them first from humility and a place of mourning. Next slide. So, so the headline verse in this text is verses 14 and the illustration of parenthood that follows it. This is what he says. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. That's a pretty profound thing. I seek, and and remember, he's the apostle. He plants the church. He has a right to their money. He has a right to their meeting his needs. But he says, that's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is you, right? And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He views them as, as, as spiritual children. And that, 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 frankly, he views his relationship with them predominantly as a one-way relationship, Right? I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? 
right? So what does he mean here that he seeks them first and foremost, the Corinthians themselves, and not what they can do for him? So, so let, let's, let's think about that a little bit just in the context of churches. When we moved to our neighborhood and we, in the very beginning of the life of this congregation 24 years ago, we, we move into our neighborhood and we look around and we look for people uh, that are in similar stage of life for us that we can get to know. People whose kids are about the same age as our kids. And so we met a couple, beautiful couple that, uh, uh, that we came to like and that, um, you know, and this, and everything, you know, early on, at least when we were doing this, you know, things went along swimmingly until people found out what I did for a living. And then they immediately are like, oh, whoop, whoop, I don't want anything to do with you. Well, you know, these people were not like that. We had a great relationship with them. And, <clears throat> The, uh, the husband, the, the father said to me, went to me, you know, we go to X church and, uh, we really like it. And I'm like, well, what do you like about it? Because typically when you talk to people about it, they'll say, well, we like the preaching or we like the organ or we like the kids program or, or whatever, which frankly is kind of its own. I, I want what I can get from you, not just you, but we'll, we'll set that aside for another day. Because what he said to me is, yeah, I like that church because it's a great place to make business contacts. Gotta love an honest man. Right? Yeah, I like that church because I make good business contacts there. So, so the fact of the matter is, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an honest person because the truth of the matter is, you know, we, have, we should ask the question this morning, is there any relationship in your life anywhere where you spend and are spent, where you give, where you love with no expectation of return? Now, hear me. I am not prescribing that to be the case for every relationship. But I am asking the question, is the gospel at work enough in us that it puts us in a place where that's true of us? Now, now one of the ways that you may be thinking about this this morning is, well, you know, I would, I would love this person better if they would just do what I want them to do. Well, you, you, you've answered my question, right? Or, or you might be in a situation this morning that, that's, that's, uh, you know, this, this person makes it very difficult for me to love them. Well, well, okay, now we're on the right track because the church in Corinth is not easy to love. And Paul has understands that in his relationship with them. And as he pursues them and as he is spent for them, he simply wants to be reconciled with them and desires their reconciliation with Jesus. That's his heartbeat. And because that's not happening, rather than react with anger, rather than react with uh, passive-aggressive kind of silent treatment or, or whatever, he simply says, you know what, I want you, and I'm willing to be spent and to spend for you. So he's interested not in what they can do for him, but in a loving and faithful relationship based on the love of Christ for them without reference of what they can do or give to him, right? So is there anyone in your life where you can honestly say, I seek in this relationship what not, not what you can give to me, but simply to know and to love you. When was the last time someone served you and it made you nervous because you wondered what it might cost you? 
Am I under obligation now to somehow or other pay this back? Early, early on in the life of the church, one of the things that you do in a church plant, because you don't have a big facility and you don't have a lot of programs, one of the things that you can do is you can practice hospitality. You can invite people to come and eat a meal at your house. And so I was with a group of leaders one day, and I said, hey, are you guys doing this? Yes, we're doing this. We're inviting people into our homes. How's it going? It's going well. One guy said, it's terrible. It's a terrible idea. It's one of the worst things we've ever done. You always love hearing that, you know. So, but again, got to love an honest man. And he says to me, we've had these people to our house three times, and we've never been invited to their house. I'll just leave that one out there and y'all can sort out all the ins and outs of that. And uh, maybe for some of you, that's like, well, he had a point. And maybe for some of you, it's, well, whatever. I don't, I, I don't even know how to think about that. But there's certainly something that happens in us when we love and we serve with an expectation of reciprocation. Now, what is reciprocation? Reciprocation is making our relationships about me giving to you and you giving back in an appropriate way. We are doing a uh, big renovation in our house, and we're doing much of the demolition of that ourselves. And I have a new friend, and it's called a reciprocating saw. I love a reciprocating saw. It is awesome. It's maybe the best tool ever because you put a blade on this thing and you can put any kind of blade on it you want and you plug it up and you go at it and it'll cut through anything. It cuts through steel pipes. It'll cut through anything. You have to be careful with it because you might cut through some electrical wires or something or, or some plumbing or whatever. I mean, it is, it is an awesome tool. And what makes it so awesome is reciprocating. What does that mean? That means it's got as much force going out as it does coming back, right? It's just as powerful pushing out as it is coming back. And that's what makes it such a powerful tool. And that's what makes it so effective. I, um, when I brought it, I borrowed it from Pastor Joe Brown. So he has one. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and when I brought it home, I, told my daughter, she looked at it and she's like, I can't wait to use that. And I'm like, sweetie, we're going to figure out a way for you to use it because I want you to have the experience. You know, when you go back to Randolph this fall, you can say, I know how to use a reciprocating saw and just see what kind of response you get from that. But um, so we're, we're, we're cutting with it. And the next day she says to me, you know, I think there's something, something on our cabinets that makes my hands feel funny. And I said, that's not what that is. She's doing a great job. I could not do this without her. I said, sweetie, that's what work with your hands feels like. (laughs) She's like, oh, yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) This is an alien feeling I got going on here. Well, a reciprocating saw does that because it'll rattle your teeth out, man. I mean, it is... It, it gives you a, a, a big shake, but the power in that is the give and take. Just as powerfully as it gives out, just as powerfully it brings back. And so when that's happening in a relationship, 
They're, 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 you know what that's like, how joyful that is, how exciting that is, how free, freeing that is, how wonderful that is, how life-giving that is, how, how, how wonderful that is. But the problem with that is, is that we kind of create some kind of demand on that, that, that every single relationship be like that. And frankly, in the gospel, in, in God's economy, it's not that way. In fact, in many of our relationships, in many of the situations that we find ourselves in, things are uneven. They're not equal. And, and, and we have to figure out a way within this to, to mourn sin, to mourn the fact that it's not what it is, and still, in Christ, find the energy to keep engaging in love and care with the people who have caused us to have to mourn. And so <clears throat> that's exactly what what he's getting here. Paul, Paul, uh, should there should there even be relationships like this? Now, there are some people who will tell you that you should never be in a relationship with someone who doesn't reciprocate all the time. I'm here to tell you that I don't think that's what the scriptures say. Now, there are going to be some relationships where there's no reciprocation, where you might have to limit that person's ability to sin against you. But the fact of the matter is, what do we see Paul doing here? Paul doesn't reject the church at Corinth. He's moving towards it, and he's moving towards it even as he is mourning the fact that their relationship is broken. Are there any Corinthians in your life that use you? Or are you a Corinthian and you have relationships where you simply are using others? Paul hopes for reciprocation, but he does not demand it even subtly in the way in which he deals with them. He certainly wants to see the Corinthians repent, but he is willing to be sad, not angry if they do not. So his power as an apostle will be manifested not in railing against them, but in mourning over their sin. In fact, what he recognizes is, is that the ministry that God may have for him as he visits them is the ministry of sadness. (laughs) the ministry of mourning, the ministry of simply looking at the situation for what it is and allowing uh, himself to grieve over the brokenness of their sin and the brokenness in his own heart. And that's not to say that there's never a place for righteous indignation, that there's never a place for righteous anger. What I'm saying is, in this text, in this case, this is what he's doing. This is how he's approaching them. So in Christ, Paul is free to see the sin of the Corinthians as hurting themselves more than they are hurting him. More than they are hurting him. So I think what we have to define here is that there's a difference between hope and expectation. In every relationship, every loving relationship, I hope for reciprocation. I hope to receive back. But I cannot enter into every relationship with that as a fixed expectation and that when that expectation is not met, suddenly we can't be in relationship anymore, right? At least in this case, that seems to be uh, what he's doing. So, but one of the ways you can kind of diagnose your heart about this is, I hope for reciprocation and when I do not get it, do I mourn first or do I just simply react with anger? 
That's a good kind of check of your heart, a good kind of understanding of where where you are. Because when you mourn for something that's broken like that, what you're 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 giving evidence to is that you're more concerned about the other person. You're more concerned about their relationship with Christ than you are with yourself. Now, how do we get at this? And and how do we how do we think about this? Well, in in the back of the bulletin, on the page of the tear-off, there's a thing at the bottom that says prayer of belief. And you've probably looked at that and you've said, well, that's for the unbelievers and that's for the skeptics. That's not for me. That's for the people that uh, go to church for business contacts. <laughs> not for people like me, right? Uh, that's, that's for people who... Who, who never have these, these kind of issues. But my question to you today is, if it's a prayer of belief, then, then there must be a question here of, do you believe this? And one of the ways you could ask yourself to see whether you believe it or not is in this issue of what do you do when people disappoint you or when people don't reciprocate? Lord Jesus, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed, but through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Now, I'm not saying that the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he spent everything, that he is continually willing to be spent and to spend and to pour it out in love and grace and mercy and power for you, that he loves you, that he died for you, that he spent everything he had to redeem you. I, it, it, I'm not, I don't want to say to you that 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 in and of itself will deliver you from ever having any disappointment in people disappointing you. That's not the case. But I do know this, that the dynamic of our relationships will change dramatically with the people who sin against us. Not that we'll feel better, not that suddenly they're going to turn around and change, but God uses these sorts of situations to build within us a sense of the worth and the value of the love of God for us. Because here's the truth. The love of Christ demonstrated to us in his life, death, and resurrection is, is, a, is such a profound thing that we are accepted by God, that I belong to him and he belongs to me. That whatever other way I may be treated in this world or, or mistreated in this world, that stands fixed and true forever. That I'm his and he is mine. That he has died for me and that he accepts me and he receives me. And he is for me. If I believe that, then that gives me the freedom not to go around correcting everyone but the freedom to interact with people so that I don't have a demandingness about myself that demands a certain kind of response in every case. And so that when I don't receive the kind of response desired, I'm free to continue to love. I'm free to continue to be in relationship with them. And I'm free to mourn the brokenness and the sinfulness that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again to deliver us from. Right? Jesus Christ is always spending, always pouring out, always, always giving. And so because of that, that, that frees me up to mirror just a bit of that in the way he's growing me and changing me in my relationships in my life with other people. So listen, here's the thing. 
think today? Is there anybody? And even if you can't think of anybody, is there any occasion in your life where you love someone simply because you love them, regardless of response? Anywhere, anytime, any place. Is that, is that even possible that that could be true? And then secondly, is there anybody who loves you without any reference to your response? Who's faithfully serving and caring for you even when you are failing in your response? Think about that. And let Jesus work in that dynamic uh, in your life. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thanks today for your goodness, your love, and your mercy. Help us today. Lord, I, I, I know that um, this uh, text will tempt some people to defend themselves, and uh, it will tempt others to uh, argue against uh, ever being in a relationship like this. And, um, and yet what we see here is, is uh, the willingness of the apostle to be spent for his spiritual children, the willingness to mourn over their sin, and the willingness to come to them, to continue to pursue them, even though they had trashed his reputation and spoken very poorly of him. Lord, help us just to sit and contemplate that. Help us just to... uh, Think about that and think about how that might change or redirect or challenge or comfort or convict us this morning. Lord, we pray today thanking you that you loved us, that you have accepted us in the beloved, and that you are for us and that can never change. Lord, we live, well, you know we are fickle and we live among Uh, fickle hearts as well. And so, Lord, have mercy upon us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.